0: Hello everybody. This is Dan Trotter, pretty good Bible studies. In this audio, I intend to cover 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verses 14 through 25. I have entitled it Praying in the Spirit and Praying in the Mind. Praying in the Spirit at home and praying in the mind in church might be a better title our context is this Paul is discussing the problem of of the abuse of tongues in the first 13 verses of 1 Corinthians 14. He has been telling the corinthians to edify the whole church not just yourself quit stomping on everybody by speaking in tongues all at once and so forth he continues that theme here and the next few verses of first corinthians 14 we'll start with verse 14. for if i pray in a tongue paul says my spirit prays but my mind is unfruitful As the NIV Study Bible says concerning unfruitful quote, when a person speaks in tongues or prays in tongues, the human mind does not produce the language. And that's absolutely true. I cannot think my way to speaking in tongues. I defy anybody to try it. You can't do it. Now, when Paul says, I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, that's where you get the phrase praying in the spirit. Instead of praying in tongues, you say praying in the spirit is the same thing. Now, notice that Paul makes a distinction, a clear distinction between his spirit praying and his mind praying. Well, if the spirit and the mind are all part of that incorporeal portion of the human being that dichotomists like to talk about, we are body and then we have an incorporeal part, which includes the spirit and the mind and the will and the emotions, they all run together. How do you explain this? Paul's making a big distinction. This is a verse that really seems to me to bolster the trichotomous case. Now, I'm not going to get into that controversy You could say that the incorporeal part of man has different aspects to it, and one aspect prays in the tongue, and one aspect prays in the mind. You could do that. I I don't really care. But it's really interesting to me that trichotomists have a great verse handed to them here that they could use in their arguments, but they never use it because they don't want to mess with speaking in tongues, I guess. Now, let me point out here this, in my opinion, crazy way that commentators try to make speaking in tongues a natural language. I mean, Paul says, I pray in a tongue. He doesn't say, I naturally pray. He says, my spirit prays. Well, here's what Adam Clark says, quote, If my prayers are composed of sentences and sayings taken out of the prophets, etc., and in their own language, my spirit prayeth. My heart is engaged in the work. So in other words, when Paul says, my spirit prays, it's my passions are engaged in parsing the natural words of the prophets and using those natural words in their natural language. In my opinion, that is, that is absolute poppycock. It's nonsense. I wish Mr. Clark were here so I could ask him this. How in the world can you take prayers and sentences out of the prophets and passionately talk about those sayings and your mind be unfruitful? If, you, if you're taking prayers and, and the words of prophets in their natural language and you're processing them and then you're re-preaching them, if you will, how do you do that with your mind being unfruitful? Adam Clark doesn't know what in the Guyana he's talking about. Again, it's because he never spoke in tongues. He doesn't know. I'm sure he hasn't spoken in tongues, because if he had, he never would say something this absurd. 1 Corinthians 14, 15. What is the outcome then? Paul continues, I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. So Paul, again, makes the distinction. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Now, the NIV study Bible says that, What Paul is saying here when he says, I will pray with the Spirit, he means he will pray with the Spirit privately at home in his private devotions, and he will pray with his mind in church. And I think the NIV Study Bible is entirely correct there. Now, there's other ways you could pray with the Spirit in church without interfering with the proceedings. You could speak to yourself in church 1 Corinthians 14:28. in just a few verses, Paul says this, But if there is no one to interpret, i.e. interpret a tongue, let each of them keep silent in church, let each of the tongue speakers keep silent in church and speak to himself. Silent in church, speak to yourself and to God. So you pray to yourself and to God quietly so you don't bother everybody else. And then, of course, you could also pray at home. I'm convinced that when Paul says, I speak in tongues more than you all, he's talking about praying at home devotionally. He's not talking about praying in the church. He could be, but I don't think so. So when Paul says here, I will pray with the Spirit, I'm sure he's talking about praying devotionally at home. But he's also going to pray with the mind, too. And I think and I think he prays with the mind at home also. But I think he's especially pointing out that in church, he's going to pray with the mind because he's got other people that are going to listen to him, as we'll see as we go on. Now, he mentioned singing with the Spirit. I will sing with the Spirit and sing with the mind also. I think he's referring to public singing of the Spirit, not at home, although it could be. I remember one time a charismatic person told me that they didn't believe in singing in tongues and spirit in in church because Paul said you had to have two or three interpreters. Well, I would go along with that if the singing in the spirit is done by oneself. If this one person gets up and sings his tongue and, and expects it to be interpreted. But if everybody is singing together at the same time, that's like saying if you're singing in English at the same time, you're interfering with one another. The whole point of this thing is to to let the body function in decency and in order without chaos and without people jumping on top of each other. And how is singing in the spirit all together at the same time anywhere near close to that? I've done it many times, and I'll tell you, it's the most beautiful, harmonious thing you've ever seen. There's nobody getting in the way of anybody else. Now, if everybody's singing in the Spirit and somebody wants to give a prophecy and everybody keeps on singing in the Spirit, I guess that would be not so good. But in general, if everybody's singing in the Spirit and you're not interfering with anybody, there's nothing wrong with doing that. You don't need an interpretation for that because tugs has other, meth me uh, other. it has certain functions such as praising God, um, edifying oneself, thanking God. You can do that all corporately. I don't think that's a problem with that, so... Now let's look at this phrase a little closer, I will pray with the mind. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of options here, three. Here's option one. Paul is saying we can pray with the Spirit in tongues privately and with the mind in church. That's the NIV Study Bible option. And... Then I take that a little bit further and, and inquire, how can one pray privately in the Spirit? Well, you could speak to yourself in church, as in verse 28. If there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. That's one way. Or you could pray at home to God individually. So, option number one, pray with the Spirit privately, however you want to do that, and with your mind in church. Now, the NIV Study Bible also suggests another option, option two. Paul is saying we should pray. He, he prays with the spirit and the mind at the same time. Now, this view is the one that I just mentioned by Adam Clark, that when you use your mind and piece together all the words of the prophets of the scriptures of the apostles and put them together and you pray passionately in your spirit, you're praying in the spirit and the mind at the same time. No. Another way you could look at how you could pray with the spirit and the mind at the same time is you could say that the Holy Spirit teaches the mind to speak in tongues. So the Holy Spirit sort of operates it and indirectly once removed this is your typical rationalist protestant reformed idea of speaking in tongues i've heard this we can't let be led by the spirit we might get into error so we've got to let the spirit go to the bible and teach us oh and if and people like dan trotter are mystics because we don't believe in the bible well i do believe the holy spirit leads people to the bible i've spent thousands of hours of my life studying the bible i believe the bible that's what i'm doing now we're talking about the bible i believe in that but i'm telling you folks The Bible's not going to tell you whether you should marry Susie or Jane or whether you should work in North Carolina or South Carolina. It's not going to do that. You have to be led by the Spirit. But at any rate, option number two, praying with the Spirit in the mind. The Spirit helps the mind speak in tongues so that speaking in tongues is sort of a natural thing that's supernaturally guided. Uh Uh-uh. I don't think that's a good option. Option three, you could, Paul says, I will pray with the Spirit. And what he means is, I will pray with the Spirit in church and expect an interpretation. And then I will pray in the mind, also pray in my natural language. I don't think that's that either, but it is a logical possibility. I think the easiest way to look at this is Paul is saying, I will pray with the Spirit at home in my private devotions, and I will pray with my mind in church. It sort of fits the context here as we go on and on. Paul makes that private public distinction over and over again. First Corinthians 14, verses 16 through 17, Paul says, Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only that means blessing tongues, only how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying. For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. And that's the main point of this verse is in church, when other people are listening, tongues is for private use. It's not for public use because people can't understand it. So keep quiet. Now notice that Paul says that speaking in tongues is blessing God. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, bless in tongues, it's also, and blessing means what? Praising God. And then also speaking in tongues of this verse is said to give thanks to God. Paul says in verse 17, for you are giving thanks well enough. How can the ungifted say the amen at what? At your giving of thanks. So when you pray in tongues, you are blessing God, praising God, you're giving thanks to God, as well as you're building yourself up, as it as it says in another place, which I don't have in front of me, unfortunately. But here it is, 1 Corinthians 14, 4 one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, builds himself up. So there you have purposes of tongues, building yourself up, thanking God, praising God. Now why would we want to do away with something that allows us to do that as Christians? Why would cessationists even why would you even listen to a cessationist for ten milliseconds? Why would you not want to do that? By the way, that word amen, we're so used to it, it means literally, it is true, or so be it. And of course you're not going to be able to say amen if somebody's praying to God in the spirit, because you won't know when the prayer ends. You don't know what he's saying. We go to verse 18 and 19 of 1 Corinthians 14. Paul continues, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind, so that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now here, Paul clearly says he speaks in tongues more than you all. He's not trying to denigrate tongues. In fact, as John Gill points out, he's trying to get, uh, avoid giving the wrong impression. He's spent so much time trying to correct the abuse of tongues. He does not want the Corinthians to completely bar the use of tongues. As the old medieval Latin phrase says, "Abusus non tolit usum." The abuse does not bar the use. Unfortunately, there are so many non-charismatic evangelicals out there who would love to borrow the use. They hate tongues, and they go, by golly, they're going to stomp it out. I speak first with first-hand knowledge of this. I was kicked out of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship for speaking in tongues when I was in college. I was blacklisted by Campus Crusade. The leadership of Campus Crusade says, don't have anything to do with Dan Trotter and his friends there. They speak in tongues. I could go on and on about that. I received a letter. Well, actually, after my grandmother died, I was going through her effects and found a letter she had written to me, to, her, to not to me, but to my mother. Where have we gone wrong? Dan is so screwed up now because he speaks in tongues. Hey, you can say all you want. I got the Bible on my side on this one. I can use it like a club and bang you over the head with it if I so desire. I hadn't done so in about 40 or 50 years because I quit arguing about it. But the, the, all the facts, all the scriptural facts are on my side. So if you want to be a cessationist, go ahead. Now, there some people are... It has been said that you could interpret this verse by saying this, I thank God I speak in tongues in church more than you all. No, I don't think so. Because he has that word, however, in the church. He's contrasting in the church. However, in the church, he's contrasting the implied, I speak in tongues more than you all at home. And then he says, I desire to speak five words with my mind rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. That doesn't sound to me like he's speaking a lot of tongues in church. He's talking about in his private devotions. If you want to say that Paul speaks in tongues more than all the Corinthians did in church, well then how could that be when Paul is chastening the Corinthians for speaking too much in church? And then Paul says, I am speaking more than you. You speak too much in church and I'm speaking more than you. That doesn't make any sense at all. He's talking about speaking in his private devotions. Now when he speaks in his private devotions, this is a little off the subject here, but there's no need to interpret, right? Because... Now, the study Bible says some say this. Well, let me join the chorus of those some. There's no need to interpret because you're thanking God, you're blessing God, and you're edifying yourself, and your mind is unfruitful. But you don't need your mind to be working. If you want your mind to work, just pray in English or your natural language. Now, let me emphasize this phrase, in the church. Verse 19, 1 Corinthians 14. In the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind. How many times have you seen non-charismatic evangelicals quote this verse and never even mention in the church. All they want to say is, see there, Paul likes Greek or his native language more than he likes tongues. Tongues is bad. Of course, all they have to do is back up and read verse 18. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. How do you handle that? Non-charismatic cessationist? How do you handle that? Paul is not talking about praying in one's private devotions. I taught this chapter, I was teaching, I taught the whole book of First Corinthians actually in China. In our Sunday night meeting, we had and a lot of the people there, of course, were baby Christians. And and I, before I started teaching First Corinthians 14, I said I want you all to say with me this phrase: "In the church." And when you when I ask you to read a scripture here, and whenever you see that phrase "in the church," I want you to say "in the church." I want you to shout it out. <laughs> I would I would that everybody would do that when they read these passages. In the church, you've got to get the context. A verse without a context is a pretext, as we know. Now let me go back to this crazy and foolish idea that speaking in tongues is a natural language. This is what Adam Clark says, quote, talking about Paul, quote, He understood more languages than any of them did, and this was indispensably necessary as he was the apostle of the Gentiles in general and had to preach to different provinces where different dialects, if not languages, were used. In the Hebrew, Syriac, Greek, and Latin, he was undoubtedly well-skilled from his education, and how many he might understand by miraculous gifts we cannot tell. Well, at least Clark allows some miraculous speaking in tongues, but it's not speaking in an unknown tongue. It's speaking in a natural tongue miraculously. It's just like if I woke up today and could speak perfect Cantonese or Arabic without having studied it, that would be miraculously. So, Clark does allow that that might be, but he still doesn't allow that it's unknown tongues. He's saying that it has to be a known tongue. But even literally understood, it's very probable that he knew more languages than any man in the Church of Corinth. Well, 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 we're going to let rely on Paul's great intellect to handle spiritual things here, speaking in tongues. Well, this is what I would like to... Ask Mr. Clark if he here, here today, how is speaking in a learned foreign language, how can you describe that as saying the mind is unfruitful? If you're going to learn a foreign language naturally or even supernaturally, if, if a foreign language is going to give it to you naturally, your mind is not unfruitful because when you speak that foreign language, even if it's miraculously given to you, you're going to be able to understand it and your mind will be operating. This is absolute nonsense. I just give it to you as a, an example of all the nonsense that's been written on this topic, all about people who don't have never experienced tongues and so they don't know what they're talking about and so they come up with crazy theories. First Corinthians 14:20 20 through 21. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. If the law in the law it is written by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. This is a quotation from Isaiah, and notice that he, Paul finishes up the quotation by saying, "Says the Lord," which means that Paul is saying that when Isaiah speaks, the Lord speaks, which means that Paul is saying that Isaiah is in Scripture, inScripturated. His words are inScripturated. He's speaking. He's Scripture. He's speaking Scripture. The Scripture is inerrant, inspired, and so forth. I say that just in case some Bible-denying liberal might be listening to this. I doubt it, but just in case. Now when he's saying, and do not be children in your thinking, and, 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 don't, and evil, yet in evil be infants, he's saying, be a little baby, don't be mature in being able to exercise evil, and of course the evil he's talking about is stomping on everybody, destroying the unity of the church, creating chaos in the church by speaking in tongues publicly instead of privately. Do not be children in your thinking, in other words, same thing, you're, you're immature, you're not thinking properly. Notice how children can be used as both a good and a bad metaphor. Remember, Jesus said you must be a little child to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a good thing. A little child is trusting. He's wide-eyed and innocent. <laughs> but on the other hand, sometimes children are... Well, let me let me tell you. Let me give you a quotation from John Gill describing children. Quote, Non-proficiency in knowledge. Want of capacity to receive, to bear, and to digest strong meat. Levity. Fickleness and inconstancy, unskillfulness in the word, deficiency of knowledge, want of understanding. Okay, so see, children have some bad characteristics too, not to mention the fact that they can be awful selfish, and they scream and holler all the time, you know, so it just depends on which aspect of the metaphor you want to emphasize. So Paul is saying, look, grow up, Corinthians, grow up, be mature. And he gives this quote, now, what did Isaiah mean when he said, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. Well, he's talking about the Assyrians coming on top of the northern Israelites, which they did in 722. They wiped out the northern kingdom. And the way that those people that would not listen to God were spoken to is when the Assyrians came using their Assyrian language, which the Jews didn't understand, so it sounded like stammering lips. Which, of course, is what all foreign languages sound like. to people don't understand the language. It sounds like your lips are just banging against each other, and you don't know what they're saying. Now, a few comments about how Paul quotes Isaiah. He inverts the strange tongues and lips of strangers. Isaiah has it the other way around. He has stammering lips and foreign tongue. He, lips of strangers has it backwards, which is no big deal. He changed stammering lips to strange tongues because he's trying to make a point here. Now, Paul can do that. Paul quote, you know, that's a, that's a big theological issue is how New Testament writers quote the Old Testament. I saw a whole theological treatise on it one time. I had I didn't read it yet, but... It's a big deal, a whole book, not just an article, a whole book written on the subject by a reform professor in Orlando. And so it's a very interesting subject, but I don't worry about it too much anymore, Paul. He's an apostle, he can quote it how he wants. And he's also quoting it out of context, you might notice, because what does Assyria coming to Israel got to do with speaking in tongues in a public assembly? I'll tell you in a minute. Another way thing that he does, he changes the third person he that Isaiah used. Isaiah says he will speak to this people through stammering lips, and Paul says I, meaning God, I will speak to the people through stammering stammering lips. John Gill says he does that to add authority to the quotation, but all that's relatively minor. The main point is how do the Assyrians speak to the unbelieving Israelites with a foreign tongue, a strange tongue? Well, it's because they're coming in there and they're and they're going to put judgment on the people. And even though the judgment was coming, they still didn't listen. And so Paul is trying to say the same thing. You speaking strange lips to all the people in this assembly, it's the same thing as you speaking as the Assyrians coming to the Israelites and speaking. They didn't understand what the Assyrians are saying, and you don't understand what the tongue speaker is saying. And so that's not a good thing. Paul uses the phrase lips of strangers or stammering lips This refers to the fact that speaking in tongues sounds very strange to those who don't understand it. They sound like babbling drunkards, Acts 2.13, but others were mocking and saying they are full of sweet wine, referring to all those who spoke in tongues at Pentecost. We're going to see in just a minute that when people hear speaking in tongues and don't understand the tongues that people will think you're crazy. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together, this is 1 Corinthians fourteen 23, two verses later, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? You're crazy? So basically he's saying, hey, when the Assyrians came, they were speaking in a strange language to whom? To unbelieving Jews who wouldn't listen to God and who were ripe for judgment. And so that's exactly what you Corinthians are Are putting your place in the place of when you listen to people speak in tongues all at once. You are putting yourself in the place of people who do not believe God and who are ripe for judgment. At least I think that's what Paul was saying. I think that makes sense. All right, a few little minor details of this verse. Paul says in the law it is written. Actually, that was Isaiah, and Isaiah is not in the law. How do you explain that? Because the full expression for the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures is the law and the prophets and the writings, and oftentimes the apostles would quote. The Old Testament by just saying either the law or the prophets say this, and then they quote something from the law. I've run across that several times. I don't have examples in front of me, but right here is an example. He quotes from the law, and he's, but what he means is from the whole Old Testament canon, including Isaiah. Paul does the same thing in Romans 3, verses 10 through 19. He quotes from a number of passages in the Old Testament, which, and including Isaiah, and then he collectively calls those passages the law, even though Isaiah was not in the law. By the way, children, and infants that Paul mentions here, the two different Greek words. Paideia is children in general. But Adam Clark says it's more particularly children grown up, ready to go to school. They're too immature. Paul says be mature, don't be like a little kid. And an infant's be evil. That's even a lower stage of infancy, of childhood. That's when you're a little baby. That's a great metaphor for the ability to understand evil. I mean, don't even be a little child. Be a little baby when it comes to evil and understanding evil. We go to verse 22, 1 Corinthians 14. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. What Paul is referring to is that quotation from Isaiah. The strange tongues of the Assyrians were a sign to those unbelieving Jews who did not believe the prophecies of Isaiah and who did not believe the words of God. But prophecy is for a sign, not to believers, but to those who believe. And Paul then refers to prophecy done in a church meeting, which he wants to be done to do its function of edification, exhortation, and comfort, and also conviction of sin. Now, we could also point out that tongues were for assigned to unbelievers at Pentecost. You had all those people that didn't believe in Jesus, and all of a sudden they started believing. So they were assigned to unbelievers. But something, a thought just occurred to me. All those believers speaking in tongues at the same time at Pentecost, were they decent and in order? Well, you could say that they were speaking their own natural language. Because it was that was a case where tongues was. And by the way, I don't mean to say that tongue, that God can never take somebody's tongue and make him speak in a natural language he hasn't understood. It happened at Pentecost, but I don't say that it happens all the time. Because so otherwise, how can you say your mind is unfruitful? But anyway, they were all doing it at once. I had it happen to me in China one time. A whole room, about fifty people, uh, countryside people, started started walking staggering around just like at pentecost like they were drunk speaking in tongues all at once well i don't know i mean it's definitely not in order that it was it wasn't planned i certainly didn't plan it. i was shocked as every, i'm sure everybody else was but i think that you might want to make an exception for an evangelistic meeting or for a when the holy spirit first falls how about it at in Cornelius's house in acts 10 i think the same thing happened there too didn't it? they didn't have interpretation of tongues and two or three speaking it just happened all at once so i guess i would make an exception when the holy spirit falls at a, at a crisis point in time of evangelism or of in my case it wasn't evangelism it was teaching but in general i think i mean i don't think i know tongues has got to be regulated in fact i wonder whether the experience that christians had of the holy spirit coming in such a wonderful way and everybody going around staggering and being drunk like at pentecost the christians might have thought well let's just imitate what they did at pentecost and keep on doing that and they got the wrong idea. Could be. I don't know. All right. So the tongues, like the Assyrian tongues, were used against the unbelieving Jews. Likewise, tongues are for unbelievers. So so therefore, tongues are for unbelievers. And therefore, since they're believers in the Corinthian church, tongues are not for you to be You don't need tongues speaking to you because you're believers. The unbelieving Jews in Isaiah's times were unbelievers. And they needed the Assyrian tongues to speak to them. But you are believers. You don't need people speaking unknown tongues to you. What you do need is prophecy, because prophecy is assigned to those who believe. Prophecy, as I said, is used for edification, exhortation, and comfort, verses 3 to 4 of this chapter. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church, builds up the church. So don't speak in tongues to one another, prophesy to one another. We go to verse 23. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say you are mad? Now, this verse over the years has caused me a lot of consternation because it sounded to me like Paul has contradicted himself. He just finished saying that tongues is a sign for unbelievers. And so, okay, ungifted men and unbelievers enter the church. So it seems that they should need to hear tongues, right? Because the logical inverse of tongues are not the logical inverse, I'm sorry, if you say that tongues are for unbelievers, like he said in verse 22, tongues are assigned, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Tongues are assigned to unbelievers, and then in verse 23, unbelievers walk in, so maybe we ought to speak in tongues to the unbelievers. That is not what Paul is saying, because what he wants to say is, in a church meeting, tongues spoken out loud all at once, not only doesn't edify our believers there, but it also screws up unbelievers who come in who think you're crazy. So I think what he does here in verse 22, and 21 and 22, he makes the analogy to Assyria speaking to the unbelieving Jews in the 8th century B.C. and it says that's a bad thing. Tongues are for unbelievers and you people are believers, so don't speak to yourself. And now he's off of that, off of that Old Testament analogy, and now he's gone to. He's just making a, a statement that has nothing to do with what went previously. And now he's just saying hey, if you speak in tongues at the same time, unbelievers come in, they're going to think you're crazy. And since tongues are a sign for unbelievers, therefore you ought to speak in tongues at them all at once. He's not saying that because that would make no sense. I think he just, he decouples himself from the previous argument and he's making a new argument here. Now we have a question is, who are these ungifted men? Ungifted men or unbelievers, you could say that unbelievers come in or Christians who don't speak in tongues would come in. Then I V has for ungifted quote, some who do not understand. And in the margin, they have some inquirers. John Gill says, suggests that it might be believers who don't understand tongues. And he also says, but it could be unbelievers. Now, I think it's unbelievers he's talking about. And I think the way we can say, prove that is by going to the next verse, verse 24. Paul says this, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And I think when Paul is talking about ungifted men there, he's talking about non-Christians. They get saved. Now, you could say, well, it's an ungifted man who doesn't speak in tongues, and then he has the secrets of his heart disclosed. But why would you, why would you single out an ungifted Christian who doesn't speak in tongues as needing to have the secrets of his heart disclosed? I don't think that's what Paul's doing. I think he's talking about people getting saved. Again, I can't prove it in the way I feel like I'm pretty sure this is talking about, in my opinion, when it's ungifted people coming in, it's talking about unbelievers coming in. They're going to say you're crazy. Now, I will say this. If you speak in tongues all at once in a modern context, and you have non-Christians who don't believe in tongues or who don't understand tongues come in, they might think you're crazy. I remember being in those kind of situations where you have to sort of have to explain. and Do you understand this? This is speaking in tongues, and this is what Paul talked about in First Corinthians 14, and blah, 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 blah. So they don't think you're crazy. Now notice this phrase, this word, assembles in verse 23, therefore, if the whole church assembles together again, this is in the church. This is Paul talking about in the church. He's not saying if you speak in tongues privately, somebody's going to come across you and think you're crazy. No, he's talking about in the church, assembles. Now John Gill points out that if people come in and think the Corinthians are crazy, mad because of all their are speaking in tongues, this would be exactly the opposite of what those proud Corinthians would want. Because they thought they had so much wisdom and knowledge and Greek rhetoric and, and so forth. I mean, after all, that's what, that was the impression that people at Pentecost had. The onlookers of the Christian, early Christians at Pentecost saw them stagger, staggering around at 9 o'clock in the morning. Oh, these people must be drunk. And Peter said, these aren't, these people are not drunk as you suppose. We go to verses 24 and 25, 1 Corinthians 14. But if all prophesy, but means contrasted with everybody speaking in tongues all at once in the assembly, but contrasted to that, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Now here is another use of prophecy to convict people of sin. We've said that prophecy is for edification, exhortation, and comfort. It's for foretelling sometimes. It's for confirming God's word in somebody. For example, when the prophets sent out Paul and Barnabas in Acts 13 at Antioch, that was three uses of prophecy. Here's the fourth one, to convict people of their sin so they might get saved. And again, it might be ungifted men, might be Christians who have sin in their heart that could be convicted of sin. I'm not going to be absolute about that because you can't prove it, but I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. Now we have another little pro- problem. If all prophesy, ooh, all prophesy. I thought that the gifts were distributed. I thought that we're not supposed to all prophesy. Paul says it again in 1 Corinthians 14 31, for you can all prophesy one by one. You can all prophesy. I don't have the other scriptures here. Hold on just a second. And I will run them down. All right, let me collect these scriptures together that Apparently contradict. I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy, and that you, as plural, you all would prophesy. that's Corinthians 14:5. Really, all prophesy? All right. Let's look at this. The well, the verse we're on says, if all prophesy, an unbeliever, an ungifted man enters, all prophesy. 1 Corinthians 14:31. For you can all prophesy. So there are verses that saying that Paul wants everybody to prophesy, but then we have verses in which prophecy is limited we read in first Corinthians 12: 29 all are not apostles are they expect an answer no all are not prophets are they expect an answer no so all are not prophets and yet he just finished saying that I want you all to prophesy but all are not prophets first Corinthians 14 29 let two or three prophets speak two or three is not all so how do you reconcile all prophesy verses with the, not all should prophesy verses? Well, I think that John Gill and Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown have the answer, at least partially. They say that when, prophet, when Paul says that I want you all to prophesy, he's saying don't prophesy not don't prophesy, prophesy all at once, but prophesy in turn. And they quote 1 Corinthians 14, 31, for you can all prophesy one by one, one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. Now, of course, you have to add to that, one by one up to two or three prophets, because that verse we just read in verses 29 through 32, Paul restricted the number of prophets to two or three in a meeting. So all prophesy one by one would have to mean in different meetings, different meetings of the church, two or three at a time, two or three at a time, two or three at a time. You keep doing that, and prophecy will fulfill its function in the church. Now, when Paul says that prophecy will convict a man so he will fall on his face, this is how John Gill describes that experience, quote, Showing the plague and naughtiness of it, of sin, discovering the lusts that are in it, detecting the errors of the mind, and filling the, consciousness, the conscience with a sense of guilt and a consciousness of deserved punishment, so that the person looks upon himself as particularly spoken to, and as if the person speaking had knowledge of all that was within him, and adopted his discourse on purpose to him, and delivered it for his sake alone. Now, that describes prophecy pretty good. I mean, in New Testament prophecy, I've seen prophecy do this, where the person just gets stabbed in the heart and says, my gosh, God is speaking to me personally. Again, that immediacy and spontaneity of prophecy is lost by cessationists who deny that prophecy exists, despite the fact that Paul is spending a whole bunch of time in this chapter pumping prophecy, saying, I want you to prophesy, desire earnestly the greater gifts. Prophesy, prophesy, I want you all to prophesy. You can all prophesy one by one. And yet cessationists, after they finish running down tongues, then they'll run down prophecy. They're scared some New Testament prophet is going to write a, a, can, a, a book of scripture and thus destroy the canon. And meanwhile, they destroy the average, the, the gift of that the average Christian could really stand to use. All right, folks, we will continue with this idea of the one body in verse 26 as we go to the end of the chapter. Basically, Paul is going to be talking about the regulation of prophecy. It needs to be regulated just as tongues needed to be regulated. We're going to cover that wonderfully controversial scripture of let the women be silent in the church. I think I have the answer to that one. So that ought to be interesting. See you next time, I hope. And I hope you enjoyed this audio.